All right, so if you guys remember from the last episode, we went to Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Yes, we saw Mothman, the Maybe. Mothman statue, but I was, still. I was going to say, not the real Mothman. Definitely Close a Mothman. enough. I mean, it was cool. It was so shiny. I thought it was funny that he had, like, chest hair. I was like... I thought it was funny he had abs. He Did he? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't I didn't see... I didn't pay attention to the abs. I was like, that is a really, really hairy chest. Look at my shirt. It's all hair. Yeah, but it was just his chest. Well, they felt he needed a it hairy chest. It was funny. Who the heck knows? It was good. We liked the museum a lot. It was cool. It was a whole lot more than we were expecting. Yeah, I don't know what what I, what exactly I was expecting. I think it was just just like a small room I was expecting, mm-hmm. but it was a lot larger than I thought. It was like a L-shaped room. Yeah. And we didn't even stay to watch the movie. No, we didn't. No, we should have. Yeah, I think we were both kind of tired from the drive. After a four-hour drive, yes. Yeah, we were both hoping to have coffee, but the coffee shop right next to them was closed already. They closed, like, three o'clock. hour. Yeah. <laughs> what a dick. Crystal. She's like, where's my motherfucking box? Would you like to go out? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they were a lot nicer than I thought they were going to be. Who were the people? Yeah, I was kind of expecting the the guys who worked there um, at that one in the Point Pleasant Trading Company. Oh, yeah. I was expecting them to be a lot more like, oh, God, not some more tourists. <laughs> more freaking tourists. Yeah. Well, and that's usually what you get in tourist places, like, um, even if it's not cryptid toured place tourist yeah. places but we even had a lady stop us on the street and she was like where are you all from because we parked right in front of the museum so she could obviously tell we were coming to see yeah that. it was it was weird we, we were, were coming like, to visit we're like people don't talk to you here uh yeah we're definitely used to um kentucky where people do not talk to yeah. you yeah well at least public. louisville yeah definitely louisville I have noticed, like, Lexington is nicer. I don't think I've been into Lexington in a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while for me, too. Mm. But, yeah, so we got some really cool stuff. Yeah, we bought a lot, actually. We spent a lot of money. More than we intended to. Yeah, a lot more. Yeah, um, so I got this awesome poster that says the boys are back in town that has Sasquatch, Mothman, the... Flatwoods monster and an alien walking across the. What is that? The cro- I mean, it's a crosswalk. Uh, oh, it's uh, Abbey Road. Yeah, like Abbey Road. Yeah. And then I got some cute little posters, posters, Post-erts. postcards, <laughs> posters. <laughs> yes, postcards. And a cute little plushy Mothman. And did you get any magnets or stickers or anything? 
You did. I got, yeah, they're right behind you. Oh, yeah. Um, I got a magnet that says, watch your back for the men in black. It's super cool. It's the best. And a sticker that has Mothman and the Flatwoods monster riding a cute little bicycle. And it says, um, keep on creeping on. Yes. It's so cute. I got, um, I got a cryptid coloring book. I got a little plushy, um... Mothman. Mothman. Not the same one as Rachel. Yep. Mine's kind of a little bit creepier, I think. I went for the cutesy stuff. Yeah. I got a couple of magnets. The one that says, uh, live, laugh, lurk. And the lurk. other one that says, lurkin' for the weekend. I also got the men in black one. And I got a sticker and two stickers. Yeah, you got a couple. I stickers. also got the, um bicycle one keep on creeping on I had to turn around and look at it I, I feel like I got something else too oh I also got a um a beanie and it says um mothman search team yes search yeah team. yeah I got a t-shirt too I completely forgot it because I'm wearing oh, it <laughs> yeah yeah my uh, beanie doesn't fit on my head correctly it just it makes me look like a smurf <laughs> but it's to, cute so I'll keep to it. be fair most beanies do not fit on people's heads Okay, well, I'm, I'm used to beanies, like, fitting nicely that, yeah. on my head. So I think that one was made for, like, people with bigger heads. Because there's all that room up there. <laughs> Either way, we spent lots of money. <laughs> but we had a fun time. Yeah, it was great. And we definitely have to go back. Yeah, and we'll post pictures. Um, no, we'll, have, we'll already post pictures at yeah, this point. We'll yeah, we'll have posted it. Um, yeah, we posted pictures Saturday. Yeah. Check out that shiz. Yeah, and you will see um, George. Yeah, of all of the amazing, cool Mothman, Flatwoods Monster, Bigfoot stuff that we bought, the thing Rachel liked the most, and I don't really blame her for it because it's really nice, is this little, um, what is it called? The squishy? It's a a stress relief toy. Oh, stress relief toy. What is it, Rachel? (laughs) It is a stress relief toy. That is the shape of a tardigrade. Oh, it's so cute. It's so cute. It's got a little and, butthole face. Yeah, it's, it's a little like butthole an Audi. <laughs> like an Audi for a butthole <laughs> face. But And his name is George in honor of my great-grandfather and my grandfather because they both had a fascination with the name George. Okay. I thought you were going to say their names were George. No, their names were Harry. <laughs> They just like But the name they did George. both have the same names. <laughs> but they both like the name George. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Weird situation. Yeah. All right. But all yeah, right, his name right. is George, and he's going to be coming to work with me, and he's going to be my desk buddy. Okay. <sighs> um. In case you don't already know, I'm Rachel, and that's Grace. I'm Grace. That's Rachel. And welcome to our podcast. We Missing are. Misfortunes. Yes. We are a paranormal and true crime podcast. Yeah, each week we pick a place and base our stories on that place. Anywhere in the world and sometimes surrounding areas. Yeah. Where are we today? What are we doing? We are in Amsterdam, Netherlands. Ooh. My sources today are <laughs> Amsterdam.info and Wikipedia. Amsterdam. 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 <laughs> Where did that even come from? I don't know. Damn. I don't know. I'll think of it. it. was founded as a fishing village around the 13th century. During the 14th and 15th centuries, Amsterdam underwent rapid development, which laid the foundation for the Golden Age, 
which was between 1585 and 1672. It was the height of Amsterdam's commercial success. During this period is when the iconic Amsterdam cityscape developed. Some of the most important historic buildings date back to 1613 and 1663, which is super old. Super old, yes. Super old. All right. In 1672, after the Golden Age ended, the French and English attacked simultaneously. Amsterdam managed to stay prosperous during the period of 1672 to 1795, in spite of the debt the Republic racked up to fight wars. The large number of uh, houses, or just dwellings in general at this time, like simple ones and rich canal houses, um, showed, like, how. Yeah. As a result, the majority of the houses located in the city center date back to the 18th century. Yeah. In 1795, the aristocratic oligarchy was overthrown and the old republic ceased to exist. Tell me why this shit sounds like Star Wars. Because you're using words like, I don't know. Anyway, soon after, the French occupied the country. During the period of between 1795 and 1813, Amsterdam suffered badly from the economic recession. Mm -hmm. Between 1813 and 1940, they economically recovered by expansion. The increasing wealth brought about a rapid population growth, and this development was primarily the result of the Industrial Revolution. Large, poorly built working class neighborhoods were also built. The period between 1920 and 1940 was another time of economic recession. This was also the period of large-scale damage to the historical city center, leading to the canals being filled in and new traffic breakthroughs. In the early years of the 21st century, the Amsterdam city center successfully attracted large numbers of tourists, and between 2012 and 2015, 3,000 hotel rooms were built. Airbnb added another according to Wikipedia, <laughs> 11,000 accommodations, and I believe it. the annual number of visitors rose from 10 million to 17 million. You know why that is, right? No, why? The pot. Oh, yeah. Forgot about that part. Yeah, the legalized pot. I was, um, I was like, I can't find anything for this episode, Dad. I need you to help me out. Um, he was like, just type in Amsterdam pot ghost. You'll find something. <laughs> like i mean no he's not way. wrong you I probably would have i was like you crazy bastard <laughs> something popped up it just wasn't long enough for me to use darn okay unfortunately because of the surge of uh tourists yes real estate prices have skyrocketed oh yes making it unaffordable for the city's inhabitants and the local shops are having to close to make way for more tourist oriented ones mm. yeah which sucks sucks yeah construction of a metro line connecting part of the city uh oh i don't know what that means i didn't look too much into this good job <laughs> so proud of you Construction of a metro line um, connecting different parts of the city started in, in 2003. And the project was controversial because its cost exceeded its budget by three times the original in 2008. Oof. Uh, because of fears for damage to buildings in the center and because construction had to be halted and restarted multiple times. Nice. And since 2014, renewed focus has been given to urban regeneration and renewal. And I guess there was supposed to be more to that sentence but 
You just left it. I just left it. There's no period or anything. <laughs> it just at the end says, that's all, folks. That's all, so, folks. There was a lot more, but I was really not feeling good when I wrote this. So that's what we have. That's okay. And that's Amsterdam. Ooh. Amsterdam. What is that from? I gotta look Amsterdam. it up. Amsterdam. Your turn. All right. So I went to preface this by saying, and I think I did tell I did tell you this. I found the story on Murderpedia, mm-hmm. but he wasn't murdered. Oh. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, I remember you saying that I thought it was weird. So just to let you guys know, he's alive. Well. He's not alive, but he was alive at the end of this. He's not alive, but he was alive, but he wasn't, like, not alive. Well, the story is from, um, 1983. Yeah, the story is from 1983, and he was already getting up there in age. Okay. So, yep. Okay. So, my sources are Murderpedia, Wikipedia, KidnappingHeineken.com, TheGuardian.com, Forbes.com, and a 2005 movie called Kidnapping Mr. Heineken. <laughs> so, you know who I'm talking about? <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah, go for it, bud. <laughs> this story is about the kidnapping of Freddie Heineken. As if I haven't had said his name in the sources enough. Heineken. Uh, Sorry, who, who was kidnapped? <laughs> Mr. Heineken. Oh, okay. Yeah. Alfred Henry Heineken was born on November 4th. 1923. He was a grandson of Gerard Adrian Heineken, who was the original founder of the Heineken Brewery. Oh, so he's actually related to the Heineken people. He is literally related to the Heineken people. Might be. <laughs> the brewery can actually be the can Wait. actually be traced back to about 1592. Jesus. When a brewing company by the name of Haystack was founded. Haystack, <laughs> Haystack yep. Haystack beer. Wonder how that tastes. However, it wasn't until about 1864 that the company was purchased by Gerard Heineken, who then used a new revolutionary brewing process that had been developed at Pilsen using a yeast strain that is still used by Heineken today. Oh, wow. Fun fact, the yeast strain that was actually found at Pilsen was founded by a student named Louis Pasteur. The same guy who developed the rabies vaccine. Oh, wow. Yeah. Science, man. Science, man. It's great for everything. I love it. I mean, technically, cooking is a science. Yes. Yes. By the end of the 19th century, century. Citrine. It's crystal. By the end of the 19th century, Heineken was being exported to France and to the Dutch Indies. And in 1933, when the prohibition finally ended, it came to America. Freddie's father ran the company from 1914 until 1940, but then sold the family stake in 1942. Mm. During this time, young Freddie, you know, he was young, was attending Kinemer Lyceum before going on to study in America. While there, he wrote to his father, I have my mind set on restoring the majority of shares in Heineken into the hands of the family. It is not my plan to become very rich, but as a matter of pride that any children I might have can inherit a stake in Heineken like I did from my father and you inherited from your father. Just before his father sold the stake in the company, Freddie had joined Heineken at 18. Oh, wow beginning his career carrying stacks of barley. Barley. 
He then worked in the sales office in New York, where he became very impressed by the advertising on Madison Avenue. Hmm. It was there that he also met his future wife and the daughter of a Kentucky bourbon distiller. Yeah, Kentucky bourbon. By the way, her name was Lucille Cummins. (laughs) Cummins? I'm sorry, did you say Cummins? Cummins. Okay, Lucille Cummins. Gotcha. Because I read it, Cummins. It's supposed to be Cummins. In 1951, he became a member of the Brewer's Supervisory Supervisory Board. And after borrowing some money, he secretly bought back a controlling stake in Heineken only three years later. Oh, wow. After about 10 more years, he was officially appointed to the executive board at Heineken, at which point he took charge of the financial aspect, as well as taking personal control over the advertising campaigns. Oh. Uh, That does tend to happen when someone is impressed with advertising in Mm -hmm. certain places. In 1979, he became the chairman of the Heineken Holding Company. So he made his way from the bottom all the way to the top. Also... This next paragraph here. Uh, This is when I was like, okay, this guy is super cool. Freddie Heineken was full of ideas. One of these ideas was building an underground railway system under Amsterdam's canals. I'm listening. Another was his invention of the square world bottle, which he claimed could be used as a brick to help solve environmental pollution and would help solve housing shortages in developing nations. Hell yeah, Freddie. I love that idea. Like, it's such a smart idea. That is a good idea. And we need, I mean, we need to implement it. I don't know why it hasn't yet. Right now. What? We personally, right now, let's do it. Yes, let's do it. We're going to find a shit ton of these square bottles and, yes. Mm -hmm. I I don't think they still use them anymore. No, they don't. Okay, so we're going to fast forward a couple years. In about 1984, 84, 81, four friends, Cor Hout, William Hollandier, Franz Meyer, and Jan Bulliard, needed a get-rich-quick plan. Don't they always? Yeah. Don't I? Well, <laughs> they had had a construction business that was, you know, really prospering for a mm. while, but... With the economic downturn, it just kind of plummeted. Yeah. And they decided they were really missing their luxury cars and their racehorses and partying and yeah. Anyway, they decided their get-rich-quick plan needed to be a kidnapping because that was the quickest way to solve their money problems. Well, um, (laughs) there are better ways, but... You know, you you do you. Yeah, I, f- I agree. I think that there are... Could have robbed a bank. They did. <laughs> 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 we're kidding there. Okay. Initially, they were not sure who they wanted to kidnap. There were several candidates. A few of them... <laughs> I'm sorry, just imagine them, like, laying out photos. They were like, stats. What about them? Okay, them. They have more than them, but they are more likely. No, what? What? They're more likely to be alone. Yeah. They are going to be easier to kidnap. Okay. Yeah. They're uh, weak. They're yeah. They're weak. Weiss Decker, who was the CEO of Philips. Hmm. Albert Hygen, I think, CEO of A Hold. Of. 
Okay. Like a hold. I know. Yeah. Anton Dressman, who was the director of Room and Dressman. <laughs> okay. And last but not least, Mr. Freddie Heineken, who was the major shareholder of Heineken Brewing Company. The kidnapping, however, required a lot of thought. Hmm. You, you, look, you said that sarcastically. <laughs> well, and time and money, but you know. They each invested 100,000 Dutch guilders in order to pay for the materials that they needed. Jan Bolliard owned a 140-foot Romney shed in the Western Harbor area of Amsterdam. It was here that they built it was here that they built two cells behind a wall with a secret door. First of all, super impressive. Like like they built that? They built it themselves within okay. the shed. In a shed. Like, I mean, it's a, it's a sizable shed. Like, it's, it's a nice layer. Yeah. And, okay, it was soundproof. First of all, it was soundproof. We Where need to learn some things from them. <laughs> yeah, we need it for the room here. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it was soundproof. It wasn't noticeable when, you know, they finished the construction. Hmm. Uh, you really could not see the door. How much did they spend on all of that? Well, they each invested 100000 so... Jesus. Dutch Gilders. I don't know how much that is. Uh, I should have looked it up. I don't know. Yeah, the room was 12 feet shorter than it had been before. And the people who were, I mean, people were still working within the shed, their construction company. And no one noticed anything. Huh. One more person joined in the kidnapping effort. Martin Earcamps. He, his role was very minor. He only helped to steal cars in order to use them during the crime. Oh, that's all? That's all he did. Yeah. Oh, okay. He's, yeah. he's fine. Let him go. <laughs> hey, mm, we'll get there. The group determined that the money transfer would be the most complicated part of the kidnapping. They initially thought of using nomadic tube transfer. Air pressure. They yeah. Using, yeah. This would allow the group to stay a considerable distance away from the people who would be dropping the money. Mm -hmm. However, this came with quite a few risks, and they felt that it was too difficult to do after attempting it several times. Several times. Okay. They then considered having the ransom money be thrown into water, like a body of water, and later collecting it with some diving equipment. However, the major problem here, though, was the weight of the money underwater. So that was obviously a big no. Right. The kidnappers also wanted the police to think that they were German. <laughs> <laughs> like, all of the materials they bought were German-made. Like, the typewriter, the water marker, and the printer. Yeah. I guess that's kind of a good idea. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it's not a bad idea i mean not great it's but... not great and they're using it for the wrong way the wrong thing but yeah they okay their plans were ready they were ready to put it in action however up until about a week before the kidnapping suddenly their their plans had to change oh why because they believed that they knew mr heineken's you know their his schedule the route that uh, he always yeah, takes yeah. his routine However, it changed that week. So rather than trying, 
rather than trying to kidnap him from his house, which was their original plan, the kidnappers finally decided to kidnap him as he was leaving his office in Amsterdam. Oh. Yes, which obviously is a little bit more risky. Right. On November 9th, 1983, right as Mr. Heineken was getting off work, he walked out of his office with two of the women from his office staff. His driver, Ab Dodderer, was waiting for him in the armored Cadillac Fleetwood, only 40 feet away. Mm-hmm. As Heineken was walking towards the car, he was suddenly overpowered by four armed men. Ooh. The women who were with him tried to intervene, but were held back with pepper spray. Oh. Like, they are literally spraying these women with pepper spray. Jesus. And, like, as they're trying to protect their boss, too. I'd be like, take them. <laughs> and... Not only that, Ab Dodderer left the car in order to also try and help. Mm-hmm. However, he, uh, he, poor guy, he didn't stand a chance. They were both, Heineken and Ab Dodderer, were both thrown in the back of the van by the Ford kidnappers, and it actually sped off with the back door still wide open. What the? They are not good at this. They were handcuffed once they were in the back of the van and forced to put on a motorcycle helmet that had the visors taped so that they couldn't see where they were going. Uh. Heineken immediately knew what was going on and even offered to write them a check. First of all, not saying I was ever I would ever be in this situation, but if I was in this situation, hell yeah, I'm taking that check. I'm dropping you off with the helmet on so you don't know who the hell I am. No, they would automatically find out who you are, though. Why? Every time you cash a, sh- a check, they would just follow to see who that che- who checked it, who cashed it. Okay, valid point. Very smart. Shush. I don't know. It just would have been less of a hassle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. So they went through the trouble of um, building that room. I would probably be like, no. Well, also, no, like... He was offering them a check and saying, you know, I'm not going to turn you into anyone. I wouldn't have believed him. (sighs) I know. Okay. Apparently, a nearby taxi driver had seen everything that had happened in front of the office building and decided he was going to follow them through Amsterdam. Oh, wow. Right. A plus. That's the issue with doing things out in public. People will follow you. Yes. Well... Eventually, they got to a bicycle tunnel where the kidnappers then switched to two other cars. This is where air camps came in. The van was blocking access for any other cars that were trying to get through, which brought them a whole lot of extra time. During this transition from the van to the cars, William Hollander walked with a gun pointed towards the taxi driver. Obviously, this scared him to death and he just booked it. Yeah, understandable very understandable and they were they were so lucky there were no police at all on their way back to the shed what none at all so as horrible these kidnappers are their plan wasn't that horrible also they're so i'll keep going (laughs) heineken and daughter got pajamas when they arrived to the shed and were locked in two different cells They gave them pajamas? They gave them pajamas. Any care for the two took place outside of working hours, 
and because of troubles with negotiations, the abduction lasted a total of three weeks. What? That's a long time. Yeah. Heineken and Dodderer were chained to the wall most of the day, slept on a mattress on the floor with blankets, had chemical toilets at their disposal, they had bottled watered, bottled water, newspapers, magazines. Uh, the kidnappers actually went and got them books so they could read, huh. and they would often go out and get them food. Why is this sounding like the plot of you? The plot of you? Yeah. I've never watched that. Oh, you should watch it. I should watch it. So, I mean, the, the kidnappers were, like, making sure they were comfortable. Well, how nice. Yeah. <laughs> how nice. Thanks for keeping them comfortable. Since the initial disappearance of Mr. Heineken, a news blackout had been in implemented on the case. The police had little to go on except for a ransom demand, which was contained in a note dropped on the steps of the police headquarters at the at the Haug the night of the kidnapping. That, along with Heineken's watch and Dodderer's papers, all it said was his papers. I'm not entirely sure. Maybe like... Identification papers? Yeah. Yeah. The police were instructed to reply in the personal section of a Dutch newspaper to signal when the ransom would be ready. The hey, bitch, come get your money. <laughs> well, the signal was supposed to read, the meadow is green for the hare. Okay. I don't know if that was supposed to be poetic or what. <laughs> I think they just they're think on that something. they're spies or some shit. Yeah. Police and kidnappers communicate by communicated by letter, coded newspaper ads, or recordings by Heineken or Dodderer on tapes in which they were used to give instructions by phone. The ransom was demanded of 200,000 Dutch, German, French, and U.S. banknotes with a total value of 35 million Dutch guilders. Or roughly twenty-two million U.S. dollars. Okay. With inflation, that amount is equivalent to fifty-seven million one hundred fifty-three thousand six hundred sixty dollars. Damn! No wonder it took three fucking weeks. Yeah, the two men were forced to pose for several proof-of-life photos during their captivity, but they never saw the faces of their captors and were forced to communicate only with notes. Huh? Like written notes. Due to the press, as normal, the first attempt to transfer the ransom failed. Of course. The kidnappers demanded that the car with the ransom should be a white van with two red crosses and that it should leave from a specific location. However, with this being published in newspapers... I thought there was a media blackout. The media blackout was after this. Oh, okay. Because remember I said they were communicating with newspaper ads? Well, yeah, but I mean, I thought there was a media blackout, like, already in effect. It happened after this. Ah. Because the first ransom, they got really quick. Like, I mean, they got the money together really quick. But because of the reporters and all of that, it was trying to come up with another way. Yeah. The police got an anonymous tip with the name of a few of the kidnappers, at which point they were put under police surveillance and tracked. 
Eventually, they zeroed in on the warehouse, and the kidnappers would have theoretically gotten away with this, except for the fact that... That meddling dog. Or the meddling kids. Except for those meddling kids. I mean, it could have been a meddling kid. You never know. Uh, No, except for the fact that one of the kidnappers phoned for Chinese takeaway and just kind of confirmed the hostages' locations. (sighs) Yeah. However, for fear of Heineken and Dotterer's safety, the plan to transfer the ransom money continued. Hmm. So the second attempt at the transfer was on November 28th. They demanded... They demanded that the driver of the car should be alone and not followed. He was then led to a list of instructions, which they had buried. I mean, they're... They're going all out. They're going all out. On the way, the driver was instructed to transfer the ransom to another car. Like, literally, get out of his car, get into another car. Yeah. Finally, on top of an overpass, the driver of the ransom car was told to stop. Through radio, he was instructed to slide the bags of money through a drainage channel. The kidnappers were standing below the overpass and loaded the ransom money into a Mercedes Hanamog and rolled away. Wow. (laughs) They, well, early, apparently earlier in the day, they had buried several barrels in the ground and Mm. they rolled away and stored all the money in the barrels. That's insane. (laughs) The day after the exchange, the kidnappers noticed that they, they finally noticed the day after the exchange that they were under surveillance. Wow. And wow. So the group decided to meet in order to discuss their plans on how they were going to deal with this. Half of them wanted to leave the country and the other half wanted to stay. When the SWAT team finally made their way into the shed, they initially thought perhaps the tip they had gotten had been wrong. Oh. Because they did just such a good job. Of hiding that back. Like, of hiding, of yeah, of hiding that back room of, of soundproofing. Like, you could scream and you couldn't hear insane. it. And hiding the secret door. Like, the door was literally a panel that you had to knock out. That's so weird. It, yes. But the SWAT team found the secret door. Heineken and Dotterer were finally free. Hmm. They were given clean clothes and taken to Heineken's villa in order to recover from the three weeks of horror. By the way, this entire time, Dotterer is, you know, having a super rough time. Heineken is just sitting here like, you're going to be okay. I mean, Heineken's an A+. I like him. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. (laughs) I like this guy who got kidnapped. He's a good guy. Before the kidnappers began their run from the authorities, they each took about three million Dutch guilders out of the barrel. A week later, the police police found the buried cash. But when they went searching for the men, they uncovered all but eight million of what was taken out. Wow. Apparently... Franz Meyer burned his portion of the money on a, on the beach. Jesus. Could have at least kept the money. Uh, well, yeah. Police arrested 24 suspects, each related by blood or marriage, to the men who committed the kidnappings. Hmm. Jan Bolliard and Martin Aircamps were arrested shortly after Heineken and Daughter were rescued. However, the other three did escape. 
Franz Meyer was in Amsterdam for several weeks, but turned himself in on December 28th. I can only assume because extreme guilt. No, probably, yeah. William Hollander and Cor Van Hout fled to Paris, where they stayed in an apartment for several months, but were arrested by French police on February 29th, 1984. They were actually placed in one of the toughest prison prisons in Pris- Europe. Prisons. Obviously, because it was one of the toughest prisons, they wanted to be extradited to the Netherlands as soon as possible. Right. However, their lawyers advised that they should not agree to the extradition because they could only be extradited based on written death threats. I wrote death threats. I think it's supposed to be death agreements. So they would only be able to go back if they said that they could be executed? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> So in this, in this case, I guess I, if I was in, I don't ever want to be in those shoes, but I would agree with the lawyer. I don't want to die. No. <laughs> Where am it's I? interesting that they would go for um, execution in the, like, case of a kidnapping. Yeah. It's, I don't know, the French. Huh. After going through all of that, the Council de Tat eventually rose ruled that France could not extradite or judge the two men. So they were on house arrest in French hotels from December 6th, 1985 until February 1986. Dang. No. At this point, France transferred them to Guadalupe. However, once on the plane from Guadalupe, they would fly to the Dutch side of St. Martin, No. However, the kidnappers refused to fly to St. Martin, which brought them to St. Bartholomew. The population on this island, however, revolted because they did not want criminals to be transferred there. Oh, yeah. They got really, really, like, the the people got really, really angry about this. They believed that it wasn't safe for the the kidnappers to stay on the island. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would... I mean, yeah. I would agree. Uh, At this point, they were transferred to the French side of St. Martin, but they faced the exact same problems there and then fled to Tentamare, which is an uninhabited island in the Caribbean and located about three kilometers from St. Martin. The next day, they were brought back to Guadalupe. Jesus. (laughs) And from there to Evry in France, where they stayed in hotels once again. Finally, in October, you know, February to October, they were in hotels. Yeah. The two were extradited to the Netherlands. Finally. Finally. Martin Aircamp was sentenced to eight years in prison. Hmm. Jan Bulliard was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Van Hout and Holladier were sentenced to 11 years in prison. Pretty much because the time that the two were on house arrest counted for two of their years. Otherwise, it would have been longer. Yeah. Franz Meyer was given a psychiatric evaluation and sentenced to a psychiatric hospital. Oh, wow. However, he escaped on January 1st, 1985. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. At which point he was sentenced later that year to 12 years in prison, but he wasn't found until 1994. What? In Paraguay. Paraguay. (laughs) And he was found by a crime reporter named Peter R. Devres. Meyer had apparently started a family there, three kids, and he was an owner of a restaurant. 
Wow. He was arrested in Paraguay and four years later was extradited to the Netherlands where he served his sentence until 2005, at which point he returned to his family there in Paraguay. Wow. Since his kidnapping, Mr. Heineken always insisted on keeping two personal bodyguards on him. I don't blame him. Yeah, not at all. He also continued to run the brewery as chairman until 1989 and as the beer brand's shareholder until 2001, the year before his death. Okay. So the only reason I think that this pulled up on Murderpedia, because Mr. Heineken didn't die. The four kidnappers, mm-hmm. after... They all got out of prison eventually. They all just started killing each other. <gasps> what? <laughs> yeah. But um, I did not write that down because that was not the story. <laughs> Rachel! How are you just going to drop a bomb like that and then not Tune tell in us? next time. <laughs> That's insane. But that is the story of the kidnapping of Freddie Heineken. Wow. That was a roller coaster. What? I. Also, I do have to say the movie was actually really good. Oh, there was a movie? There was a movie, yeah, um, from 2005 called Kidnapping Miss. Uh-huh. And it's got one of the guy, one of the actors looks looked really familiar to me. And it was killing me trying to figure out who it was. It's a kid that p- uh, played in Summerland. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. <sighs> okay. Okay. This was hard. (laughs) Yes. Like, a lot harder. Because I had picked something out for the Netherlands, but what I picked out wasn't going to be as long as I wanted it to be, and it had a lot of contradictions. Yeah. So I was like, no. So I'm basically about to give you a uh, miniature tour uh, ghost tour around Amsterdam and uh, a couple other places outside Amsterdam. Ooh. Just because this, it wasn't long enough and I needed to add a couple things. Uh-huh. And one of the things that wasn't in Amsterdam, I don't think it, no, I think it was. I think it was just like outside of Amsterdam, just outside. I could be totally wrong. Call me out. I don't care. Just but call I me found out. found it was really interesting. It's fine. So my sources are a lot. A lot. A lot. Okay. A lot, a lot. We've got DutchReview.com, Amsterdam City Tours, Amsterdam Walking Tour, I Amsterdam, I am expat.nl, NetherlandsTourism.com, TheShadowlands.net. TheShadowlands.net. Yes. That's fantastic. Okay. So we're going to start this off in the Damn Square. Ooh. Yes. Damn Square is in the sitter. Center. Sitter. Sitter. Yes. <laughs> Dam Square is in the center of Amsterdam where the Royal Palace is located. And like, well, nowadays it's packed with like shopping and sightseeing during the Spanish Inquisition. Mm-hmm. A lot of public executions took place here. Jeez. And thousands of women were accused of witchcraft and burned alive. Of course. Yes. Oh, along with accused heretics, obviously. Oh. Many believe that some of those witches and heretics mm-hmm. still haunt the square, especially around the royal palace. Oh. There's no specific stories that I could find. However, that's what people say. 
Also, the Amsterdam Dungeon, located on the site of a 16th century cemetery, uh-huh. is located nearby. It sounds really interesting, actually. The dungeon has a lot of like paranormal shows for visitors to see, and they talk in depth about all the things that went on during that time. What's the dungeon called again? Amsterdam Dungeon. <laughs> okay. How generic. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's name brand. Oh, name brand. Amsterdam. Okay. Okay. Uh, next on our tour <laughs> is uh, Spookstig. Spookstig. I'm not. I looked it up. I couldn't find a correct pronunciation. Ghost Alley, basically. That's what it is. Spookstig. Um, it is the oldest part of Amsterdam in the Red Light District. That's also where one of the city's oldest ghosts is said to reside. It's the oh. ghost of a woman named Helena. Oh. Yeah. Not all. Not all? Not really. What? Uh, she lived there in the 18th century with her sister, Dina, and her father, who was a tanner. And one day, a sailor fell in love with Helena's sister, who was supposedly more beautiful than Helena. Which infuriated her. Oh. She was so jealous that she threw her sister into the family cellar, essentially killing her. Like, oh just my threw her down there. God. And then she staged it to look like an accident. Helena, honey, no. <laughs> no. No. So then she went on to marry that sailor. Oh, hon. No. You, no. Yeah. No. Lived with him happily for the rest of her life. But on her deathbed in 1753, she admitted to the murder. She admitted it to her husband and begged him for forgiveness. Instead of forgiving her, he cursed her soul to roam restlessly in misery for all eternity. So so the moral of the story is don't kill your sister and marry her marry husband. Marry her boo. Yeah. Um, marry her fiance. Yeah, don't do that. After her death, many people reported hearing screams and moans coming from the place where she killed her sister, and some have even reported seeing her ghost in the alley. Other people also say that they've seen her sister's ghost in the alley. Okay. Moving on from there. Moving on from Sprague. Uh, Spookstig. Spookstig. I don't know. Ghost alley. Spookstig. Now on to Bloodstraat. Bloodstraat. I didn't say that correctly at all. I'm so sorry, guys. Bloodstraat. Also in the red light district, some people claim that its name comes from the blood of the prisoners who were executed there Mm -hmm. and that their blood ran through the streets and down into the canal. There have also been ghost sightings linking back to the Franciscan monastery that was located on that spot in the 16th century. People say that's where the uh, famous blood council took place. Blood council? Blood council. Pray tell, what is the blood council? I actually looked it up because I was like, I don't know what this is. I need to look it up. It was originally called the Council of Troubles and was established under the reign of Duke of Alba. The Duke of Alba. I don't know. Okay. Uh, during the time to punish the ringleaders of the recent political and religious troubles in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. It became known as the Council of Blood because of the numerous deaths, uh, the numerous death sentences pronounced by the group oh my yeah so no yeah what no that's Uh, horrible but yeah people claim that the spirits of the people they sentenced to death are still roaming the street okay i can yeah yeah i thought vengeful spirits yeah i thought that was an interesting history that yes Okay. okay 
So this one is at the old spinning house, um, it, which is all I'm going to call it because honestly, the name is spin who, who is, who is, I can't mm. see the word you're trying to pronounce. S-P-I-N. So spin H-U-I-S house. Right. Spin house. Yeah. That's why I call yes. it spin house. I was just talking about the actual pronunciation. So it was founded in 1597 as a penitentiary. Penitentiary. Yes. It was founded in 1597 as a penitentiary for women. Today it's a popular hotel, but back then the women in the penitentiary were kept there and forced to sew clothes. The most famous story surrounding this place is that a priest and one of the girls who was there fell in love, but weren't able to see each other, obviously. Obviously. The priest was devastated and committed suicide, and the girl had to spend the rest of her life at the penitentiary. It said that one of the hotel rooms is haunted by the priest's ghosts, and even staff members are spooked by this and refuse to enter it. Mm-hmm. I tried to look that up, hoping for more stories. No. No. If if there were, they were all in a different language. Okay, so this one's supposed to be one of the oldest and most popular legends, but it's extremely short. It's just like one of those things where like, oh yeah, this sort of thing just happens. Oh yeah, I love those. Um, It's like two, three sentences. Yeah. It's like, like back in the 13th century, there was a man named Matthew who was a magician and a thief who would spend his time gambling. Mm-hmm. People said that he used dark magic and trickery to win and that he had made a pact with the devil. Okay. Some versions say that he died when the devil came to collect his soul while gambling. Yeah. And that it's believed that he roams around Amsterdam Street after dark. Cool. That's okay. it. Okay. Cool, cool. That's, <laughs> yep. Sure. This is the one that I was actually really interested in. Mm-hmm. Because you remember I was telling you about the character in The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina Faustus? Yeah. I think that's who this guy is based off of. Oh, really? Yeah. Because Johann Georg Faust, also known as John Faustus, was a German traveling alchemist, astrologer, and magician during the German Renaissance. Mm -hmm. It's also said that he preyed on his male students. Oh. Yeah. There are tales of torture and evil doings attached to his name. And because of his practices, there was a rumor that went around that he had also made a deal with the devil. One of the rumors that went around was that the devil would be his servant for seven years and help him with his experiments. He's thought to have died in an explosion caused by his experiments, but some think that it was the devil who came to collect his soul. All right. So it's known that he spent time in the Netherlands, but it's not really known if he actually lived in this one castle that people say is haunted by mm-hmm. him. In Dutch stories, he lived in Castle Wardenburg. Wardenburg? Sure! Wardenburg. Wardenburg? Wardenburg. At the top of the tower, there's a window with really old blood stains on the sides Ugh. of the frame. It's said that that's where the devil dragged Faust away to hell. Ugh. Both locals and tourists have said that ghosts climb the castle stairs at night and move things around in rooms. Like you'll just see something, next moment, gone. Gone. Footsteps are heard in some places where people are like totally alone. Mm-hmm. And in some rooms you can hear whispering, which is creepy to me. I was going to say, that's creepy. There were also some claims that human bodies were found in the castle cellars. I believe that. Presumably ones that he had experimented on. Yeah. 
The castle is not available to tour because it's being used as an office currently. So, don't, like, don't go swarm them. Aww. Um, you can see it from a distance. <laughs> Darn. We wanted to visit castles that had dead bodies. Yeah. Not that there aren't a million or anything. The last one. Uh-huh. Syngraven. Syngraven estate functioned as a convent for Franciscan nuns for about 10 years around the 1500s. Okay. And during this time, a nun... So I found two different stories on this. One was that it was a religious sacrifice. Yes. The other was that she was found guilty of interacting with the villagers and being unchaste. And that after a mock trial, she... Either way, Mm -hmm. she was put behind the wall of a convent as punishment. And for days, the other nuns can hear her scream and moan. Until she finally went quiet. Ugh. Yes. But it, so, you know. Quiet because she died? Yeah. Okay. The hauntings apparently started after that. Obviously. Obviously. Reports of nuns appearing above the moat's water mill. And it's also said she brings bad luck to anyone who lives there. Owners and family members have died young, had extreme finance issues, or were victims of horrible accidents. And in one instance, there was a man who lit a cigar after dinner and tripped over an oil lamp, lighting himself on fire, burning him to death. (laughs) You okay over there? I hate that I'm laughing, but also I see myself doing something like that. (laughs) You and your martinis. Could be you. Man, those martinis, they hit me fast. Hey, you could be like... On your way to go fix the fire downstairs and just, like, trip. Yeah. Fire everywhere. Anyway. Um, <laughs> to this day, the nun is sometimes seen as a pale, shapeless mist or appearing behind a window of the estate and is said to predict disaster and shame. The nun predicts da- disaster? Yeah, her appearance is supposed to predict uh, disaster. Weird. Yeah, so, like... Some people say it's because of her that those things happened. Other people say that she just, like, shows up before those things happen. So she's like Mothman. Or like the Beignet. Yeah. Anyway, either way. This legend gave the building the nickname The Black House. The Black House. Yes. And that's Amsterdam. Oh, I told you that mine was short. I know, I was just thinking, wow, this has gone by really fast. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed the ghost tour. But I wish there had been more. I know. I There was one that I was going to add, but it was like a sentence. Um, mm-hmm. Like a family that comes back once a year to haunt the tower or whatever. And then another of some guy that was locked in a room and nobody's ever opened it since. But You didn't want to talk about the male Rapunzel? No. <sighs> He got bitten by his dog and went rabid. Oh. So they lured him into this room, locked the door, and just let him die, basically. <laughs> that is so mean. Well, yeah, what could they do? Uh, they didn't really have the tools to fix rabies other than killing you. I, don't, I mean, They could have at least opened it and given him a proper burial. They were afraid he would come out and kill them. After he died. They didn't, they don't know that he died. His corpse could still be there. Nobody's opened it. Knock on it. Say hello. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just saying. But, right. um, yeah. That's um, what we got today. Sorry it was short. Sorry we said things so incorrectly. Yes. Yes. But, um, Google has failed us and, and we are uncultured swine. 
You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Myths and Misfortunes or Twitter at Myths Misfortune. Or you can search for us using our full name, Myths and Misfortunes will pop up. You can also send us <laughs> cat hair. <laughs> you can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. Our music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. Please rate, please review, please subscribe. Please. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Bye. Goodbye.